0: Welcome to Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and on this episode, we're going to talk about neonatal jaundice. Just about every baby has some level of jaundice, and a good number of them need to be hospitalized. In 2009, Pediatrics published a review of hospitalization trends for jaundice that showed between 2003 and 2005, more than 2% of all term newborns required treatment for jaundice. That's not a huge percentage, but when you consider that there are about 4 million annual births in the U.S., It adds up to more than 100,000 babies being treated for jaundice every year. You're going to see neonatal jaundice in practice, and probably on your next test, which is why we're here today. Let's start off with why so many babies are jaundiced. Bilirubin is produced as the body metabolizes heme, which is a molecule mostly associated with red blood cells and hemoglobin, but that's also found in myoglobin, cytochromes, and a few other enzymes. The bilirubin then heads to the liver, where it's conjugated into more soluble forms that can be excreted in urine and bile. The bilirubin that's excreted in the bile then gets passed out of the body and stool, although some of it does get reabsorbed and cycles back into the liver and bile through a process called enterohepatic circulation. Newborns are set up to be jaundiced at just about every level of that process. Fetal red blood cells have a shorter lifespan, which, along with the higher hemoglobin concentration seen in infants, leads to higher bilirubin production. Babies who have bruising, cephalohematomas, or other birth trauma are at higher risk of jaundice for the same reason. As their bodies break down the red cells in the hematoma, it's all going to be made into even more bilirubin. The liver enzymes responsible for conjugation also aren't fully active in the first few days after delivery, so all that extra bilirubin isn't getting processed as efficiently as it will once everything is up and running. The bilirubin that does pass into the gut is less likely to be excreted in the stool because of the lack of bacteria in the gut, Slow intestinal motility, and a few other factors cause newborns to have a higher rate of enterohepatic circulation than older infants and adults. Jaundice from these factors is present to some degree in almost every single baby, and is called physiologic jaundice. Usually it's first noticeable somewhere after the first 24 hours, and levels peak around 3-5 to five days of age. A little later, toward the end of the usual physiologic jaundice window and for a few days after that, breastfeeding jaundice becomes more common. All the factors that cause physiologic jaundice start to work themselves out around the 5-day mark, but breastfeeding jaundice is related to inadequate milk intake in exclusively breastfed babies. Because bilirubin is excreted in the urine and stool, if a baby isn't taking in enough, there won't be much coming out to help clear the bilirubin, and it'll start to build up in the serum. There are a lot of reasons for poor milk intake. Mom's milk supply might be slow to pick up, baby could still be trying to figure out how to feed, There could be a combination of those two or any number of other factors. But the nice thing is that it generally resolves over time. If it does look like breastfeeding jaundice, the recommendation is to nurse a ton, at least 8 to 12 times a day, to maximize intake and stimulate supply, and then to supplement with formula if needed to keep the baby well fed. The last cause of jaundice on the normal end of the spectrum is breast milk jaundice. This is typically defined as non-pathologic jaundice beyond the first week of life, and can be present for as long as 12 weeks after birth. Nobody knows exactly what the cause is. It might be a factor in certain mothers' breast milk that increases bilirubin reabsorption, could be a genetic variation in the baby, or any of a lot of other proposed theories that aren't important to get into here. Breast milk jaundice is usually mild and doesn't require any kind of intervention, and it is absolutely 100% fine to keep breastfeeding while you wait it out. The bilirubin will improve pretty quickly if you substitute formula, but that's really not necessary to do. The general recommendation is to make sure that there isn't any underlying pathologic cause for the jaundice, and then to wait for it to resolve itself, usually by the time the baby is 12 weeks old. About those pathologic causes you need to rule out. We won't spend too much time on it here, because pathologic jaundice deserves its own episode, but I do want to mention a few of the things that are important not to miss in newborns. First and most important, whenever you first check a baby's bilirubin, be sure you check the conjugated or direct bilirubin in addition to the total. Physiologic jaundice, breastfeeding jaundice, breast milk jaundice, and even a lot of the pathologic causes are going to be predominantly unconjugated bilirubin. If your patient has a conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia, it is always something you need to investigate more, and if it comes up for a newborn on an exam, the answer is usually to get an ultrasound to look for biliary atresia. Hemolysis is another cause of jaundice in neonates worth knowing about. For babies, it's generally mom's antibodies coming across the placenta that are the problem. The official AAP recommendation is to check a direct antibody test, usually called a Coombs, on the cord blood if the mother is Rh-negative or has an unknown blood type, but you often see it tested universally as a way to screen for hemolysis risk. ABO and Rh incompatibility are most common, at least on tests but any difference in antigens between mom and baby's blood has the potential to cause trouble. Rh incompatibility, an Rh-negative mom making antibodies that go after an Rh-positive baby's blood cells, is the type of alloimmune hemolysis most likely to be severe or even fatal for the infant. Fortunately, it's not something we see very often since Rogam came out. Rogam is an anti-RH immunoglobulin that's given to Rh-negative mothers to help prevent them from mounting an immune response against an Rh-positive baby. The body typically doesn't have an immune response to an antigen the first time it's encountered, but if the antigen is bound by a lymphocyte that recognizes it, it primes the immune system to go into full-on attack the next time the antigen comes around. By giving Rogam, the idea is to bind all of the Rh antigens with the injected antibodies before the mother's immune system sees them and creates a memory response. The concept of preventing immune sensitization with antibody injections goes back to two groups. Ronald Finn in the UK, and William Pollock, John Gorman, and Vincent Freyda in New York. In 1964, John Gorman's sister-in-law was actually the first woman to receive a prophylactic injection with Rogam, and after a few years of clinical trials, it was approved in 1968. ABO and RH incompatibility are probably going to show up on the Coombs test and be fairly obvious early on because they tend to cause severe early hemolysis. If your patient shows signs of hemolysis a little later or less prominently, doing a full type and antibody screen, like you might do before a blood transfusion, will help identify some of the minor antigen incompatibilities. Hemolysis due to antibodies passed from mom can have a variable course, but patients with persistent hemolysis that's leading to anemia can need months of close follow-up until the maternal antibodies are cleared from their blood. A few quick words on other causes of early jaundice. Again, we're not going to spend too much time here because they're less infant-specific, but it's still worth knowing. If everything looks like hemolysis, but the usual immune lab testing is all negative, you should consider intrinsic red cell defects like spherocytosis and G6PD deficiency. If your patient has a persistent unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, Krigler-Najar and Gilbert syndrome, two disorders that lead to impaired conjugation in the liver, should also be on your radar. Diagnosing hyperbilirubinemia isn't exactly complicated. You check the serum bilirubin, but remember, the first time you check, you always check total and direct to make sure it isn't a conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Who gets tested has some variability from place to place and provider to provider. Some pediatricians check every single baby before they go home from the hospital, while others only do it for newborns who look yellow or have risk factors, and it all seems to work out pretty well. That brings up another point. Babies who look yellow should have their billy levels checked, but visual inspection is not a reliable way to estimate how high the level actually is. You sometimes learn in med school that visible jaundice spreads from head to toe, and that's usually the case. But there is so much variability in how visible it is with different skin tones, differences between observers, and other factors, that the eyeball test isn't good for anything other than deciding that a baby should have a lab drawn. Since I mentioned risk factors... The major risk factors for developing significant hyperbilirubinemia in infants over 35 weeks gestational age are visible jaundice within the first 24 hours, ABO incompatibility or other known hemolytic disease, gestational age of 35 to 36 weeks, an older sibling who needed phototherapy for jaundice, cephalohematoma or bruising, East Asian ancestry, and exclusive breastfeeding, particularly if feeding isn't going so well or there's significant weight loss. Your patient's age, gestational age, and risk factors help you decide what to do after you get that first Billy level. Every pediatrician I know refers back to the bilirubin nomogram, which you can find at billytool.org, to see where the baby's bilirubin falls on the chart. Babies born at 38 weeks or later without risk factors are considered low risk. 38 weeks with risk factors, or 35 to 37 weeks and otherwise fine, are medium risk and infants born at 35 to 37 weeks with risk factors for jaundice are on the high-risk part of the curve. If your patient isn't to the point of needing treatment, the nomogram gives you some guidance on how quickly you should repeat a lab draw to see which way things are moving. If your baby's belly is on the higher end, you switch over to the treatment nomogram, which is a slightly different chart. What matters here are neurotoxicity risk factors, active hemolytic disease, asphyxia, lethargy, G6PD deficiency, temperature instability, sepsis, acidosis, and an albumin of less than 3. Again, 38 weeks or later without risk factors is the low risk group and has the highest threshold for starting treatment. 38 weeks with risk factors, or 35 to 37 and risk-free are medium risk, and infants born at 35 to 37 weeks with risk factors for neurotoxicity get treated at the lowest bilirubin levels. When we talk about treatment for neonatal jaundice, we almost always mean phototherapy. In 1956, the staff at Rochford General Hospital in Essex, England, noticed that babies near the windows were less jaundiced than the ones who didn't get much sunlight. It turns out that the right wavelength of light converts bilirubin to more water-soluble isomers that can be excreted in the urine, which is why it's so important to make sure patients getting phototherapy stay well hydrated. Since the usual mechanisms for metabolizing and eliminating bilirubin aren't working quite yet, we use the lights to help bring the levels down until a baby can handle things herself. If you've had much exposure to newborn care, there's a good chance you've heard about billy blankets. But if you haven't, they're fiber optic blankets that are given to babies for home phototherapy. They definitely do decrease bilirubin levels. If they didn't, they never would have been approved. But it seems like I know a lot more stories where patients on billy blankets still had to come to the hospital than stories where the billy blanket got the job done. Then again, I recognize as a hospitalist, I am never going to see a billy blanket success, so I tried to find some studies to see how well they work. In 1997, K.L. Tan published a study in Pediatrics that compared billy blankets in a few different configurations to standard triple phototherapy. Billy blankets were capable of doing almost as well as regular phototherapy, but only when the infant was sandwiched between two billy blankets and kept there, which is not something most parents are eager to do at home. With just one billy blanket, the setup most families would go home with, babies took around 20 hours more to have the same decrease in bilirubin as with standard phototherapy, and the drop in bilirubin in the first 24 hours was anywhere from 10 to 14 on the billy blanket compared to 19 in standard phototherapy. Most importantly, four of 42 patients with standard-sized billy blankets and three of 43 with large ones failed treatment while there were zero treatment failures with conventional phototherapy. So again, billy blankets do work, just not as well as true phototherapy. If the bilirubin level is too high, or if the baby is showing signs of encephalopathy, you skip phototherapy and go to exchange transfusion. The exact levels vary from patient to patient and are on the treatment nomogram, but if the bilirubin level is around 25, you should start to get concerned and maybe let the NICU know you have a baby who might need an exchange. Exchange transfusion works by drawing blood out of the patient and replacing it with donor blood, rather than just adding the donor blood like you would in a standard transfusion. The mechanism for treatment in jaundice is, instead of waiting for the liver or phototherapy to get the bilirubin down, you are physically taking it out of circulation. It's rare to do, which is appropriate for a last resort type of treatment, but you have to know how to escalate therapy when it needs to be done. Finally, let's spend a little time on what happens when everything goes wrong. The biggest risk from untreated hyperbilirubinemia is CNS toxicity. Strictly speaking, kernicterus is used to refer only to the histopathology associated with the condition, bilirubin staining in the brainstem nuclei and cerebellum, but now it's also used to describe the clinical syndrome of chronic bilirubin encephalopathy. Chronic encephalopathy is characterized by athetoid cerebral palsy, auditory dysfunction, and oculomotor impairments. And thankfully, we treat jaundice well enough that it doesn't come up very often on tests or in practice. If you can only remember one type of bilirubin encephalopathy, remember the acute phase. Acute bilirubin encephalopathy is a clinical syndrome associated with shorter-term exposure to toxic bilirubin concentrations. In the early phase, infants will be lethargic with decreased tone and a poor suck before progressing to irritability, high-pitched cry, fever, and increased tone with arching of the neck and back. The advanced stage of acute encephalopathy amplifies all those symptoms with pronounced arching, shrill cry, occasional seizures, and bicycling movements of the extremities. If you see any of these signs of encephalopathy, it's an indication for exchange transfusion. Bicycling is also definitely a popular buzzword for tests when they want you to recognize acute encephalopathy. So if a question describes a baby making bicycling movements, either check the bilirubin, start an exchange transfusion, or both. And that's all I've got for neonatal jaundice. For take-home points, remember physiologic jaundice is most likely in the first few days, breastfeeding jaundice in the 5-10 to 10 day range, and breast milk jaundice after that. But as always, the patient's history is the most important part of making the diagnosis. The risk factors are also good to know. Jaundice within the first 24 hours, ABO incompatibility or other hemolytic disease, gestational age 35-36 to 36 weeks, an older sibling who needed phototherapy, cephalohematoma or bruising, East Asian ancestry, and exclusive breastfeeding. You are almost never wrong to check a bilirubin on a newborn, but make sure the first draw includes both the total and direct bilirubin to rule out the scary stuff. Once you have your number, use the nomogram to decide if your patient needs phototherapy and watch out for the signs of encephalopathy. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on Google Play Music, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back again with more Pied Soup.